uprootedness, exile and forced displacement, be it due to conflict, natural disasters or even so-called development, affects the lives of millions of people across the globe and the numbers are increasing as shocks and crises force people to flee their homes and find safe places to live. In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS researcher Jaideep Gupta speaks with Lila Mehta from IDS and Cassia Grabska from Erasmus University Rotterdam about their co-edited book, False Displacement, Why Rights Matter. They reflect on their research and experiences in Egypt and India and how realising rights and amplifying voices of displaced people matters even more today. Forced displacement uh, is a development challenge, not only a humanitarian concern. Uh, Globally, there's about 80 million forced displaced people who fled their homes to escape violence, um, conflict and persecution. But of course, uprootedness and exile also result out of persecution in non-conflict situations, uh, or even as a result of so-called development. More than half of all forcibly displaced people, that's about 46 million, do not cross international borders and are known as internally displaced. And tragically, 40 million are children. Uh, these people endure enormous hardships through their di- through their displacement that goes well beyond the trauma of violence and the immediate impact of the displacement. There's enormous loss of assets and livelihoods uh, and inability to plan their future and continued cycles of risks and vulnerabilities. Uh, Interestingly, a majority of refugees and IDPs are located in urban areas where ostensibly they should have access to basic services and opportunities. However, this is not the case. I have with me two scholars who focus on the rights violations that occur and the problematic policy frameworks that those who are forcibly displaced come into contact with. Katarzyna Grabska and Laila Mehta edited a book titled Forced Displacements, Why Rights Matter. Kasia, Laila, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, Kasia and Laila, this book was published in the late noughties. It has been 10 years since. Uh, could you, in turn, I suppose, talk to us about how the world has changed, what has changed, uh, or perhaps what hasn't changed, and what aspects of the book are still relevant today? Cassia, can I come to you first? Yes. The main concern of the book was around the questions concerning who determines rights, who guarantees them, and who is entitled uh, to rights in the context of forced displacement. Uh, And as you mentioned, forced displacement for us in the book was much wider than uh, refugee situations, people who flee conflict uh, and political upheavals. Um, But it included also people in the situations of displacement that was uh, development-induced. What hasn't really changed, and our main claim in the book when we published it, uh, as you said, already over 10 years ago, was that this problem of forced displacement is not going away. And I think we can see this, that you know, the numbers that you've already cited, forced displacement is not going away, is increasing, is increasingly becoming more complicated. People are moving forcibly uh, also because of climate change, of course. Um, so this hasn't changed. Uh, at the time we were writing the book, we were talking about around uh, 56 uh, million people displaced. Today, you gave us the number of 80 million people uh, displaced. So we can see that this is with us. This is an an issue that affects all of us. I think the other thing that hasn't really changed 
is where the displacement actually happens. Where are the displaced uh, people located? And as we claimed in the book, and also the variety of chapters that we had in the book uh, illustrating different case studies from the global south, majority of displaced populations remain in their regions of displacement. So this whole idea that refugees and displaced people and migrants all want to come to Europe or to the US uh, is actually a, a, a false idea. So this, this is continuous and there is a continuous burden on uh, regions that uh, suffer from acute food shortages, water shortages, other developmental problems not to mention limited access to variety of rights, social, political, economic rights. These regions, uh, they are the ones who receive the majority of displaced populations. Leila, I don't know if you want to come in on some of the other things that maybe have changed since the times that we wrote the book. Yeah, great. Well, nice to be connected with the two of you again, because we did this quite a while ago. So it's nice to look back. I think in terms of the rationale of the book, there's a lot that is still relevant today, and then I'll turn to briefly to what has changed. I guess what we were trying to do was to push back against some of these very top-down, you know, determinants of understanding uh, displaced people's lives and situations. So the fact that often it was very knee-jerky, it was focusing on immediate needs, as opposed to really looking at displaced people's own understandings of their loss, of how they determine their situation. And I think that still exists today. Uh, we still have a lot of official labeling and categorization of who counts as a refugee or not, who counts as a displaced person or not. Uh, so the right to determine these issues really affects people's lives, life's chances, livelihoods. And I think we were slightly pushing back against that. So in that sense, we were looking at the tensions between, you know, a universal framework which can guarantee rights based on the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then that leads to both civil and political rights as well as socioeconomic rights and also the Refugee Convention, but also looking at the limitations of that, what that means in different contexts, how these are interpreted globally, nationally, and also the pushback against that. We were also trying to, I think, bring together the different kinds of displacement situations, because often the different displacement groups, scholars, as well as practitioners, don't talk to each other. So people working on refugees situations don't necessarily look at internally displaced people. Uh, the development-induced displacement scenario often doesn't come in. And so we thought it was good to bring all these different regimes together. And in that sense, rights were a way to, to bridge that. A lot of these issues are still relevant today, very much so. Uh, some things have changed. So I guess what has changed is, in some ways, as Kasia and Jaidi, both of you have said, the magnitude has increased. So we're talking about the numbers have nearly doubled today. Uh, so I think that is significant for a whole host of reasons. We also have a slightly changing world. I mean, apart from COVID, which I guess we'll talk about in a little while, there's also a hardening of attitudes towards refugees. Um, solidarities have changed. We also have authoritarian governments all over, which are often scapegoating displaced people, minorities, refugees in different ways. So I guess there's quite a lot to push back on today. And in that sense, what we were trying to do then still really um, matters even today. 
So these are some um, really large issues and um, indeed grand challenges that we've um, touched upon. And, you know, a common thread that I find quite interesting between both of your opening comments is um, this point around narratives and labels. Um, and I suppose the, the mislabeling uh, and the false narratives uh, that have produced really oddly shaped solidarities. And Lila, as you mentioned, solidarities that are changing. Uh, so as much as, uh, you know, we focus on on actual policy frameworks, on key situations on the ground, this sort of, I, I suppose it's a layer that, that comes across and over all of this is, is also important to take note of. Now, I, I sort of dipped into the, the book again uh, last night, which is really quite enjoyable. It's nice to see a, a, a good range of these chapters. And it reminded me how, how much fun the edited volumes are, because you, you get a, a real perspective of voices. But I, you know, what interested me was that the book begins with um, this remarkable account of a sit-down protest of Sudanese refugees in Cairo uh, in 2005, I think it was, Cassia. And it was, uh, you know, you write that it is unprecedented across the global south in terms of size and duration, lasted many months. And interestingly, the protest centered on the violation of refugee rights, not only by the Egyptian government, but also by UNHCR, uh, who, as you say, is an agency mandated to protect refugees. Um, I wonder, Cassia, if you could tell us a bit more about this situation, but use that as a as a platform to to talk about the perhaps the contemporary situation in Egypt and and what has happened since uh, you've written the book. Yes, two thousand five, the protest <laughs> took place fifteen years ago. That's a really long time ago. Um, but I think, in many ways, this protest uh, was a key turning point for refugee situations. Now I'm really speaking about refugee situations, but we will come back also to uh, uh, to the situation that Laila uh, focused on in the book, uh, which was uh, the protest of uh, development displaced uh, people. In 2005, uh, what was unprecedented was the fact that refugees who are in, Sudanese refugees in Egypt, who are in a very particular situation, of being under the protection, uh, being on the territory of the Egyptian government, but under the protection of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, because although Egypt is a signatory to the Refugee Convention, it sort of delegated all its rights and obligations, especially obligations, to protect refugees to UNHCR, arguing that, well, we don't have resources, we are a poor country, struggling economy, we already can't take uh, care of our own population. So therefore, all the needs, and really the discourse uh, was around needs of refugees rather than rights, should be taken care of by international agency and other non-governmental organizations. And this hasn't changed. The situation is uh, still as such, although there has been a lot of pressure on the government of Egypt, but also other governments in many um, development contexts. But what we could also see in the situation in Europe, interestingly, with the influx of uh, um, asylum seekers and migrants to Europe, how European countries started delegating their responsibilities to UNHCR as well. We realized in a situation like this that this idea of you know, the bad authoritarian regimes that do not take care of refugees is actually much wider than that. 
and also applies to so-called democratic countries, as we saw in Europe, that were also not able to meet their obligations under the Refugee Convention. So in 2005, Sudanese refugees decided to protest the violation of their rights. And what was unprecedented then was the fact that they gathered, despite the fact that they were in very vulnerable legal position in the country, they faced a lot of violence from the, uh, from the police, but also subsequently from UNHCR because the protest eventually was crushed after three months. And apparently uh, that was uh, also um, under, well, we could say UNHCR closed its eyes on this and, and the Egyptian government moved in uh, and crushed the protest. But I think what, uh, what that situation really showed us was the solidarity that Laila mentioned in her opening remarks. And it was not only solidarity among refugee populations that were taking care of their own rights and saying, well, we need accountability for these rights. Who is actually accountable? We need our rights. These rights, we need a recognition of the fact that we have rights under the Refugee Convention, but also as human beings. And I think this is this kind of universal claim that they were making to human rights conventions. And these rights need to be upheld. And UNHCR and the Egyptian government are responsible for this. So they were really making it very clear that both are responsible, that that's not, you cannot just delegate between one institution or another. This protest also showed the kind of failure of this international and uh, national protection that exists for refugees uh, in many settings. And that continues. If you look at the situation in Egypt right now, UNHCR still does refugee um, or asylum uh, determination, examines refugee claims, does refugee resettlement to third countries, although that in the situation of COVID right now and also these curtailing, uh, curtailed spaces of protection has, uh, uh, has really uh, diminished significantly. But also what it showed, the fact that the conceptualization of rights by refugees, by Sudanese refugees in the Egyptian context, was often very different from what uh, the rights that were being proscribed in the Refugee Convention, for example, were spelled out. So it was, refugees were claiming the right to resettlement. The right, there is no such a thing as right to resettlement, but if we think about resettlement as part of the wider social protection for refugees, then uh, being in a safe place where people can have access to livelihoods, education, health, social services, becomes part of uh, this bundle of rights, becomes part of this wider social protection. And this is also what we were, um, what we were arguing uh, in our book, that you can't really see these rights in isolation, uh, political rights uh, versus economic and social rights. You have to sort of see them as a bundle. So in fact, refugees themselves we redefined the way we look at rights and how they understood their rights as, as, as human rights, as refugee rights, as rights of people in very marginal and, uh, and difficult situations. Um, what has, I think that if we look at Egypt now, what I think is a much more difficult situation given the fact that uh, with the change uh, in 2011, uh, with the Egyptian revolution and the change in the political regime, protest is no longer allowed. So in fact, uh, the protest that happened in 2005 uh, of refugees on the streets being supported by many Egyptians also uh, who were joining them, uh, bringing food, sharing resources, 
would not be allowed right now uh, in Cairo. That would be crushed down. And uh, uh, so the space for protest, I think, and Laila, you also uh, alluded to this, has really um, become much, uh, much more restrained. So in this sense, the protests in 2005 remains unprecedented, even though we saw refugee protests, of course, in the refugee camps in, in, in Turkey, in Greece, in the more recent uh, situations uh, uh, in Europe, but also uh, if you think about the caravan that was crossing um, uh, through South America to the US, uh, you know, the famous caravan uh, last year, that's also part of these debates, how displaced people, refugees, asylum seekers, are seeking recognition uh, of their own voices, of their rights, and seeking alternative solutions to provide their own social protection. That's really fascinating, this tension between people laying claim to their rights and at the same time this shrinking space for those voices to be heard. Laila, what does this look like uh, in the context of India? Now, it's it, in the Indian context is obviously one that both you and I have been interested in for quite a while, and it, it just seems that we know a lot more about those that are internally displaced due to natural disasters, possibly due to due to conflict. And I think this is about five million in India this year, and it's it's the largest number of new uh, or newly displaced uh, internal um, people anywhere in the world. But I believe this doesn't account for those that are um, displaced due to development, and there's a lot less we know about those spaces uh, that uh, people that are uh, displaced because directly or I suppose indirectly due to development, uh, the space they have to, to raise their concerns. So what does this look like in the context of India, Laila? I suppose drawing on some reflections of the chapters you wrote in the book and your intro as well. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of what kicked me off as a researcher, looking at so-called development-induced displacement and displacement due to development. So this means questioning what we mean by development, because I guess um, it goes to the heart of some of the modernization project, you know, uh, big dams, roads, infrastructure, and now more recently mines, extractivism, all were seen to be what a nation needs to quote-unquote develop, whatever that is. So in that sense, there was always this price that had to be paid uh, by certain populations. So it was always, you know, um, some of these groups have to make a uh, sacrifice. But the question is, who is making the sacrifice? And invariably, uh, these are indigenous people, uh, vulnerable people, people that live in so-called remote areas that are actually very, very lush uh, are, have huge uh, natural resources. So these are areas where the state wants to penetrate, um, seize these resources, and these people weren't, didn't count. So these people have been considered to be disposables. So in the early years of the displacement issue, uh, you know, they were just forced to flee. You have stories of, you know, uh, rivers flooding and people fleeing so-called like rats. And there are accounts of that by anthropologists and others in different parts of Africa, India. And the case that I looked at, the Narmada, which was until the 80s and 90s, India's last free-flowing dam, had a series of dams. And this is a project that has really inspired me and shaped me. I mean, not the project, the movement has inspired me and shaped me. So I guess the chapter focuses on the dams on the Narmada, in particular the one controversial Sardar Sarovar Dam in Gujarat, 
which will has already displaced you know several hundred thousands of people and the whole project will be about a million people and there's been protests going on since the mid 80s and i think it's this protest that has really highlighted uh the dark side to these projects um the questions of the fact that compensation was never awarded and even if it was um it really did not make up for what was lost so again the themes of the book around local definitions of rights local definition of loss are some of the things that i discussed in the chapter um the fact that even so called good resettlement and rehabilitation policies are woefully inadequate and uh, you're still talking about um a lot of ill being a lot of problems uh, and the focus was largely on people's risks you know risks to livelihood risks to jobs risks to employment but not really focusing on their rights their their own definitions their parts their determination so i guess we were really looking at people's rights to livelihood rights to development even right to protest and right to determine and all these issues really come to the fore in a lot of these debates the chapter also focused on protest and indeed the save the narmada movement or the narmada bachandalan has inspired you know generations of people including myself people who are now scholars and activists and others So this is a really dynamic movement which was a coalition between the displaced people as well as middle class activists. And you know, they this movement succeeded in actually suspending the dam for many years, slowing down the 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 construction and while some people would say the dam has been built, I think we shouldn't forget uh the successes along the way, raising awareness about the situation of ousties and displacement. raising awareness about questions of rights the protest also led to international coalitions which led to the um formation ultimately of the world commission on dams which came up with best practice of course countries like china india turkey and indeed the world bank that actually was one of the founding agencies they have rejected the principles and now it's 20 years actually since the wcd the world commission on dams but we do actually have a lot of good practice there so i guess For me when I look back on this people are still not resettled you know even after decades of displacement and resettlement of, of protest so there are some people the Indian government has not succeeded in uh, restoring livelihoods and lives to several people some people are still stuck in the Narmada valley and they haven't been displaced some are uh, you know in in resettlement villages and are struggling many have moved on you know many have kind of got on with their lives they've moved to the plains etc and i'm in touch with some families what we also have in india is shrinking spaces so the kind of protest that was possible in the 90s uh, at the turn of the century is difficult now in an authoritarian government uh the current right wing government in india bjp led government follows the so called gujarat model which is all about big projects big infrastructure and really doesn't care about the rights of minorities of vulnerable people so i guess in that sense the right to protest you know there's also been problems there shrinking spaces but still amazing protest that still happens and really the need to highlight questions of accountability and also the role of the state because i think one thing that's different in internal displacement as opposed to refugees that kashya has spoken about is that the state violates your rights but the state you also turn to the state to protect your rights so there's a janus 
faced role of the state. And I think that's where the IDP situation or the internally displaced situation is very different to that of the refugee regime. And it's very difficult for international uh, frameworks to often be applied in national contexts because there's a pushback. And especially now with this populism and growing authoritarianism, there's even more of a pushback against universal standards against these kind of uh, rights regimes that we were advocating in the book. But I think, Leila, one thing that is uh, interesting in this debate is this assumption that uh, when we have international bodies, uh, they will actually protect. They will be the ones who will uh, safeguard the rights of displaced people, you know, refugees, uh, migrants, and so on and so forth. In fact, what we have seen uh, very clearly that the political context in which these uh, organizations operate, the type of um, political deals that have to happen behind, uh, uh, um, behind, behind the screens, uh, that have to happen with the governments that actually host refugees or displaced populations, it's, it ends up being a very similar situation to, uh, to the situation that you are describing and where the governments ultimately are both the violators and the protectors of rights and the guarantors of rights and the international organizations similarly uh, very often they end up uh, violating the rights of those people who are supposed to be protected by them and i think this is also what in the case of egypt uh, in 2005 but we have seen it you know across the border now especially uh, you know in the situation in the mediterranean for example the the very limited space in which, for example, UNHCR was able to respond uh, to the uh, movement of asylum seekers uh, and migrants or display, you know, potential refugees who are crossing the borders from Libya or from Turkey, it shows actually that international organizations are not, you know, they are not the protectors always. They are also violating. And the accountability there is much more diffused because they are not accountable really to anyone. So the kind of issues around accountability that we were trying to address in the book, I think are even more so important right now, uh, given the fact that we have the Refugee Global Compact that was signed in 2018, all the debates about burden sharing, solidarity. These are all wonderful words. But at the end, uh, when we look at how they are actually implemented, what is happening on the ground, how uh, displaced people are being really partners in this international protection and national protections, we see that you know there is a lot, a lot more consultation rather than participation of these groups uh, that is going on. Mm. I completely agree, and I think what we've seen is, um, I mean, since twenty fifteen, there's been a lot of, I think, in Europe, there's been people suddenly have seen things happening here. But when you look at the European response, it's absolutely shocking because for one, as you said, Kasia, you know, 85% of people, you know, are refugees stay in countries which are already very overburdened by all kinds of challenges, development challenges and other situations. And the EU response has absolutely been shocking and ad hoc. So, you know, in terms of responsibility, uh, the 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 systems of the European asylum system and the Dublin agreement, all of these have been undermined. And also European courts and institutions have behaved in very inhumane ways. I mean, they've really fallen back on European standards too. So I guess in that sense, it's it's really very, very problematic. And in the UK, you know, just a couple of days ago, uh, there's been debates about family reunion, not taking in child refugees. So 
you know, we're talking about really falling back on basic principles, uh, which is which are really, really abysmal. And these issues of accountability, I think, and passing the buck is what's happening more and more. And I think that's going to increase, especially now with COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yes, that's definitely something that we see. And, you know, the usual, uh, the usual response that, well, uh, we don't have enough resources uh, to manage, uh, to manage situations far away from us. And COVID now gives a very good excuse to countries that are the better to do countries that took in refugees for a long time and guaranteed these spaces of protection not to do it anymore. And the closing of the borders, of course, uh, this we see um, affects family reunion, humanitarian responses and so on. I think what is interesting in the debates in the European context is these issues around solidarity that we also discussed. On the one hand, we see the shrinking space of protection. On the other hand, we saw in the European context, but also in, the, uh, in other contexts, really across the globe, uh, amazing solidarity of just ordinary people who, uh, who pushed back, who defied all these terrible rules. I mean, in Europe, if you look at the EU law on criminalization, smuggling of, uh, of migrants, uh, a lot of the solidarity that was shown by ordinary people by just hosting, uh, you know, asylum seekers, migrants who cross the borders in an irregular way as motives for arrest, as motives of prosecution. So, of course, the famous cases of of the Captain Carla uh, Rakete in uh, Germany, who was helping with her boat um, uh, to rescue people from the Mediterranean. But at the same time, what we see, some of the European court is going against some of these acts. And I think that's also important to see, that there is a legal mobilization uh, at the level of lawyers, at the level of civil society, to really push back against, uh, against this infringement of rights and the kind of shrinking spaces. And if uh, I think the European court just yesterday or the day before uh, I heard uh, the judgment about the asylum system in France, where they actually condemned France, for having a very inhumane uh, system of asylum seeking process. So I think you know things are happening, but there is much more need to actually bring them to the focus instead of only uh, seeing the negative. And I think this is what we also see in our work as anthropologists, as sociologists. We work with people who are addressing these issues on the ground. Uh, who are fighting against uh, these uh, these processes on the ground. So we see this amazing power of people to go against, to create other systems uh, of protection, to actually claim their rights, to come together. And, and, and I see this in the recent project that I'm doing right now in Geneva with one of the small refugee uh, associations, uh, Eritrean refugee associations, uh, the way they have been extending uh, protection to uh, especially young unaccompanied minors who arrived uh, in Switzerland over the past uh, 10 years, a lot of it has been uh, the work that the government should do. But this association took on uh, the responsibility and, and the kind of ways of finding, finding a way to live together for the different uh, societies. So for the, for the refugees who are arriving, for the local society to, uh, to, 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 to create these bridges and understandings. And I think that's the only way we can address the wider political, uh, political complications and the political barriers that are there, as you say, with the kind of rise of um, right-wing regimes and authoritarian regimes and, and shrinking of rights. It's really the people who can do that. 
That, that that's so interesting, Cassia. And and so you know when you uh, when we look at these movements, uh, the solidarity based movements, uh, civil society movements, right based movements, they often known for a, a singular focus. Uh, and indeed, by the groups themselves, it's it's a great way, it's a great strategy to get heard, to be relentlessly pursuing a single cause. But of course. As we know from ethnographic work, these movements are incredibly diverse and they address a whole range of needs, uh, you know, because the, the communities that they represent face a whole host of multiple and cascading risks and vulnerabilities. And these movements are indeed a reflection of that diverse complexity. And, and in, in today's time, you know, one of the, the big risks, Lila, you mentioned briefly, is of course coronavirus uh, that is impacting um, local communities in in really diverse ways, but also in in similar ways to all of us. But uh, but Lila, could you talk to us a little bit about what the I suppose let's begin with what the direct impacts of COVID have been on uh, internally displaced populations, and then maybe we can also cover uh, some of the indirect impacts that are likely to occur as the pandemic kind of depletes already scarce resources that you were talking of, Cassia, and it also debilitates host communities. And so the likelihood of increased tensions is is high. But Laila, could you um, perhaps offer some reflections on, on what the current situation is for internally displaced populations? I mean, we're already talking about some of the most vulnerable people that are forgotten by governments and policymakers. So obviously COVID-19 will uh, heighten some of these tensions and exposures. So these are already populations that have limited access to healthcare, water, social protection, adequate housing, food. And in that sense, they may be more vulnerable in terms of exposure to COVID. Um, in many situations, if we're talking about camps, uh, we already find people living in overcrowded situations, emergency shelter. So it's very difficult for uh, physical distancing and we they're not going to be operating in the situations where we are, where we have comfortable homes and, you know, we can carry on operating. So I guess, you know, we're also talking about very vulnerable and these are often minority populations or populations that are already stigmatized, be they Rohingya or for whatever, you know, populations that already have um, stigma, discrimination associated with them. Um, and I guess a lot of this will probably be heightened um, in the context of uh, COVID-19. So, you know, it's not just the physical space, but it's also questions of, of stigma. So I guess um, it's very easy to overlook a lot of these internally displaced people in this crisis. Um, and, you know, is uh, and their so-called scarce resources are going to be even more scarce. So what's going to happen in the international context, I guess Kasia has already spoken about borders closing. And I think it's very important that even when, you know, even in the context of COVID, we should still think about questions of safe passage, ways in which, you know, you can continue with, you know, these humanitarian commitments, you know, maybe introduce quarantine, uh, safe process. Look at what Trump is doing right now. I mean, he's basically using the pandemic to completely clamp down on all kinds of border movement, immigration, cancelling visas. So I guess it's really important to safeguard the rights and protect uh, these priorities, you know, and include these in both donor commitments as well as national commitments and manage these border restrictions in ways that protect international human rights um, and refugee law. 
And I guess a lot has to do also with the ODA, you know. Um, there's a huge debate now about what's going to happen with overseas development assistance. And I hope that um, it will not shrink, you know, in through COVID-19 and it will not affect both the work that is going on, but also, you know, the, the, the work that is so urgently required and the attention that is so urgently required on refugee populations and internally displaced people. Because as you started out by saying, we have unprecedented numbers now, 70, 80 million people. We've never seen these kind of numbers. Yeah, they will continue. They will continue to grow. They will continue. It's not. It's looking at, looking at the political situation right now and, uh, uh, and development situation also. So, so in, 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 that, in that context, Cassia, um, and perhaps, you know, if you could place us in, a, in as positive a, a space as possible, given the, the circumstances, what are the policy solutions? What are we searching for here? Um, you know, we've said rights matter. Um, that rights continue to be important, if not even more important at the moment, because of this uh, this heightened sense of uh, of of hardship that's been placed on on certain marginalized populations. That's increasing. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about perhaps community or bottom up approaches? Uh, Lila mentioned there's more research needed. So, what types of research might funders get their interests uh, behind uh, what are the directions we should be heading towards i don't really have uh, i don't really have uh, golden solutions but i think uh, from my work as an anthropologist who works uh, really with with communities with people on the ground rather than with macro level policy discourses i think what we really need to recognize and to some extent i think policymakers have been recognizing this but in the current covid situation this seems to be pushed back again uh, is the fact that to create these effective policies you can't you can't just do a consultation uh, with community groups you can't just do a consultation uh, with uh, refugees or displaced populations they they really have to be part of these solutions and i think this you know this has been said for over, this is not new, you know, the solutions are exactly the same as researchers, activists have been talking about for years now. Um, The question is, do we have the political will to do that? Uh, Do we have the political spaces to include um, refugees, displaced populations in these type of uh, solutions? And, uh, you know, looking at the global uh, compact for refugees, um, there is that willingness of really engaging with, with refugees. And I think, you know, it seems, it seems like uh, in, in some ways for me, uh, there are a lot of very utopian prescriptions in it. Um, but if the states take seriously their commitments rather than as, well, this is another um, document that we signed, but we don't really need to act on this. If these governments can act on this, if they can really uh, take into account and take refugees, displaced populations as partners in policy making, I think that's the only way we can get at policies that are relevant to the lives of, of people who, uh, who live on a daily basis in these situations. Um, so for me, that's really, uh, that's really the key. And looking at these small groups that I've been uh, interacting with, different types of associations that I've been seeing, what people actually do on the ground, it is possible. You know, it, it is possible. In, in Geneva, um, some of the work that the association I mentioned has been doing, political work that I've been doing, has influenced uh, the policy of the government uh, of Geneva Canton towards integration of refugees uh, in Geneva. So these political alliances are important. 
and they can change wider policies. Uh, but I think as researchers for us, for me, what is the key in my work is to remember that the work we are doing has wider political consequences. And we can't just keep it uh, um, you know, to ourselves in our academic circles, but we need to communicate it with policymakers, with activists. We need to build these bridges with refugees and displaced people themselves. Because in some ways, we have access to certain um, avenues of communications that displaced groups might not have. So how to build these bridges that their claims and their concerns and their conceptualizations of rights uh, can be communicated in these policies. I think that's, that's the key for me. And Lala, I, I, I would like to give, uh, I suppose, you the last word. Uh, we're, we're quickly running out of time for this podcast. I know our conversations will, will continue, uh, and, and I do hope this podcast sort of strikes up interests in, in others who have been kind of swept up in this narrative around COVID um, uh, realities, kind of placing arguments around uh, rights to movement as utopian and I, and I, and I hope we've done we've, we've sort of triggered these conversations in, in many minds and, and, and that those conversations will continue. But Laila, uh, you know you have the, the last word on on how or, or we must search or, or what types of policy solutions we're searching for here and, and indeed if you could focus a little bit on advice to um, research organizations uh, on on the ways in which research can be structured uh, to navigate the change that's before us? I mean, I guess these are huge challenges. So uh, we're living in, I mean, we always hear about this now since March, we're living in these unprecedented times and huge crisis, but out of huge crisis can also be an opportunity to think creatively. And I'm just thinking about the, you know, in the interwar years, there was a after World War One, there were two million refugees stranded in Europe, and they were instead of being turned away or left to languish, you know, uh, they were issued this refugee passport or the Nansen passport, and it was only to some groups, but it really focused very much on uh, looking at enhancing the rights and looking at multiple uh, intersections of rights in a way that we don't have today. So I guess you know this 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 passport was recognized by about 52 countries and it was a very creative interesting solution um many groups were excluded but and it didn't provide for full citizenship but it did you know provide for some fundamental rights such as the freedom of movement the possibility to find work and a place to live and there are lots of uh, strands and movements talks today about you know creating some kind of creative solutions be it humanitarian visa safe passage uh, the idea of global citizenship because in some ways, you know, because of the failures around accountability, we need to think big and creative. And indeed, as Kasia said, you know, despite the hostile environment in the UK or very restrictive regimes, you know, you have a lot of creativity going on everywhere. You're a cities person and, you know, cities around the world have been providing safe haven to refugees. So in Brighton, where we live here, you know, you have and in the UK, there's the cities of sanctuary movement, there is a sort of um, cities of light movement where there's huge pushback against, you know, national, the national regime in terms of um, restrictions really to work with refugee solidarity, integration, provision of work, as Kasia was saying. So in that sense, you have these experiences of citizenship for refugees beyond the formal realm. And I think as researchers, 
we need to mediate, we need to create those spaces to allow these multiple experiences of realizing rights and realizing citizenship that is happening all over to, to allow that to happen more. So I guess, you know, we are in a time of huge crisis, but I hope that this crisis will allow us to think creatively, uh, to think about uh, enhancing mobility, finding ways to do that, finding ways to really enact and al allow these kind of multiple forms of citizenship and rights to, to unfold uh, for, for displaced people all around the world. Laila Mehta, Kasia Grabska, thank you both for joining me in this conversation. It's been really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.